Here we are, episode 32 of Built for Better. Today I had Action Alexa, as she's known on Instagram, or Alexa Townley. Uh, we recorded this episode probably four to six weeks ago, uh, so it's a little bit old, I've been a little bit busy, um, but I was first introduced to Alexa at a real movement camp in Sydney where she presented to us a really cool story around alcohol that I think a few of us could hear, um, but before we get into it, let's roll the intro. I'm sick of us not doing this right, that's why I think I'm cutting you from my life. No more, I'm sick of us not doing this right, that's why I think I'm cutting you from my life. No more wasted energy spending the place for every hour of waste. I need an escape to center me. And I don't mean to make a rush for the door, but time's a currency. I'm currently poor. I'll be leaving it soon. I don't mean to be rude, but this scene ain't for me. Like your mom's seeing your nudes. Yeah, how's your day been? Yeah, good. Good. Interesting. Varied. A lot of traveling around, a lot of connecting with different people. I'm loving it. Hey, like I just saying, you know, it's, it's funny this whole situation. As much as I hate that there are other people out there that are really struggling, you know, you almost have that guilt that you're actually as okay as you are. I'm actually really loving doing what I'm doing. Like this, all the stuff that I'm doing now is the stuff that I've not done for so long. I've resisted it and resisted it thinking I wouldn't enjoy it, thinking I wouldn't enjoy the travel for mobile training, thinking I wouldn't enjoy doing some online programming. And now that I've had the opportunity to do it, I actually really like it. So who knows what the future will hold. What was your mindset <laughs> like when it all went down? You know, I think like everyone, I was kind of nervous. I think, you know, it's almost like you, especially with trainers, I find, for example, like we got into training for a very, very specific reason. And so a lot of the time, like if you identify with being physically strong or you identify with being a gym personality or a fitness personality, and all of a sudden you have your it's not just your livelihood, but it's kind of like your whole identity challenged overnight. It's like, shit, well, who am I if I don't work in this gym? Who am I if I can't train like this? Who am I? Like, what am I going to do if I don't have equipment? But, you know, I think the people who really, really, really love what they do and are in it for the right reasons and are super passionate about learning and getting better and growing, you kind of just go, okay, well, what can I use here? How can I adapt? If I can't use weights in the gym, what is another way of training? Who can I learn from here? Who can I get to help out? Who can I collaborate with? You know, and the amount of like podcasts or online programs or people who've just experimented beyond their normal status quo, I think like it's quite cool. You know, as much as we've been saturated, it's really cool to be able to see what people have been able to achieve, you know, that potentially they didn't think they could. So, yeah. Yeah, and who did you look to um, when you were looking at all of this kind of stuff? Like who motivated you to make what sort of changes? It's really interesting. Like I've never really used external people to motivate me. I actually don't find, I don't get motivation externally. I've always had this intrinsic motivation. Like I've always been the only person that I feel like I could depend upon. And while it may seem incredibly unhealthy to some or maybe a little bit self-indulgent to others, like that's just how I've always kind of run it. And every time something's popped up, it's kind of been like, okay, is this the worst thing that I've ever been through? No. Do I think I can adapt and make it through this? Yes. Okay. Well, what needs to happen? And I often find now that like I actually function best when other people don't know what the fuck is going on and I can kind of take charge because then I feel like I have to. Whereas if I have to follow everybody else, it's kind of like, oh, Jesus Christ, what is everybody else doing? That doesn't motivate me at all and I tend to like forget what I'm doing. So I actually thrive when I'm kind of in a really stressful situation. And I, yeah, I find it easier to then take a a role of leadership as opposed to like following what everybody else is doing. Yeah, hundred percent. What yeah. uh, what sort of outdoor sessions have you been putting together? Not group ones, actually. Like, I don't really, I don't enjoy group training. I'm really pedantic about form, and it really stresses me out when so many different things are happening and I can't correct people. <laughs> so, um, you know, like I've got all my usual clients, and they've got all their own space at home. So these are people that I've already trained, I'm already familiar with. Um, and so it was kind of like a seamless transition. I've only taken on a couple of new clients through them. Um, but mainly I've like, I've got 350 kgs worth of weights in the back of my car. My poor little RAV4 is going to die a slow and painful death. And I've just been lugging that around Sydney. In fact, the only help I need right now is someone to tell me how to pump up my tires because I feel like they're going to burst at some point. Yeah. And in following <laughs> you, uh, I really see that you like to use tempo. That's a big thing for you. 
hundred percent. I like everything to be really slow and controlled. I think, you know, I've had a significant injury in my life. It's not the only one I've ever had. And I think the more injuries that you get and the older you get and the more experience you get, like when you first start out in PT, you think a good session is like having everyone on the ground, absolutely dying. They have to be vomiting, you know, they have to be not able to walk out of the session. Um, as, and that's the definition of a good session. And to a lot of people, that's still what it is for me my attitude towards training has completely changed from when I was in my twenties through to my thirties and now in my forties and having had an injury and having had to work myself back from that, it just changed my perspective. And a lot of the clients that I work with now, they've had injury, which is why they've been attracted to me in the first place, or they are older or they've, you know, they've been doing something that's not working for them. So this is just the change that they needed. So they're definitely more, um, in it to try something new and they tend to listen, you know, so yeah. Yeah. So strength through full range and uh, time under tension. That's kind of what I get from your yeah. socials. And yeah. you really like, if it's a four second eccentric, you're on to them to be like four seconds. It's not it's something that I really like. I do a lot of group stuff and I, you know, a four second eccentric to half of them is actually two seconds. Oh, hundred percent. Um, and I've got clients that, you know, I've got, two girls that train together and I laugh at them all the time because I call them the push and pull. Like one hates doing pulling movements. The other one loves it. One hates doing pushing movements. The other one loves it. One loves doing slow and controlled. The other hates it. She just needs to get out of her head and just go, 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 go. So it's kind of like the first half of the session is all the strength. And I'm like, okay, you just have to make it through the first half of the session and do what I tell you. And then the last part is like, all right, mate, I'm really sorry, but now you're just going to have to get your shit together and follow what she's doing. So it's kind of like learning to give them what they need, but include what they want so that everyone kind of walks away thinking that they got a little bit of both. They got told what to do, but they also got a little bit of the stuff that they enjoy and that kind of keeps them happy. Yeah, I think that's why everyone needs like a trainer because if you plant your own sessions, you're not going to put the things you don't like in in the session. Oh, God no! Who wants to Who wants to do the stuff that they're shit at? Because it sucks. <laughs> <laughs> Let's rewind a little bit. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about what your upbringing was like, what you're like at school, and how you got into health and fitness industry? Who? How I was like at school? Thinking back to what my report card would have said. Um, you know what? It's really interesting. Like I had a military upbringing. So contrary to popular belief, um, I'm not Australian. You probably got that anyway. I'm Kiwi. Um, well, I would consider myself Kiwi. I support the All Blacks in the World Cup. So that's all that counts. Um, but I grew up in the UK. So my dad was a major in the British Army. My mum was a medic. She specialised in gunshot wounds. They met in the British military. He's like six foot two. She's five foot. He's brunette. She's a redhead. I'm like 5'8", blonde, built like a brick shit house. They're both skinny. My dad's nickname was Bones. So I didn't know what happened. But um, I actually grew up in military school till I was 10. So I lived in, I was born in Scotland, christened in Edinburgh Castle, part of the military. Um, and then I moved around England, Ireland and Germany in military school till I was 10. And then we moved to New Zealand. And then I went to school. I grew up in Kerry, Kerry and Gisborne. Then went to university in Auckland and then got offered a job in Hong Kong when I was 27, lived there for seven and a half years, then met Chris Feather, who owns 98 Riley Street, um, when I was at a Jim Jones advanced seminar in Utah one year, and went back to Hong Kong and was like, see you later, guys, I'm out. And three months later, I moved to Sydney. I've been here ever since. So, yeah, I was a, like, I was a straight 180 at school. So I didn't really get into sports until I was like 15, 16. And then my dad was like, he was a semi-professional cricketer, semi-professional football player. He was a ski instructor. So he, I was the boy that he never had. And he just kind of like pushed me into everything. And I just got into playing pretty much every sport known to man. So yeah, and I've never looked back. Like it was probably the best transition that I ever did. Like for me, my like when I was 15 my whole life kind of changed because my mum was diagnosed with manic depression like now known as bipolar but back in those days there was no education or awareness or resources or support around mental illness and suicide and you know I had to find an outlet for everything that I was going through I was um you know I was really lost and I started going to the gym on this mission for muscles and on this mission 
to find some strength that I didn't have. And, you know, weights for me, the weights room training was the first time that I ever felt empowered or strong or inspired. And, you know, that connection that I developed really, really early on between how I felt physically and the mental toughness that came with developing that physical strength and the resilience that came with that, that's something that I've been able to carry forward throughout my entire life. And, you know, it sounds really dramatic, but if I look at every single situation in my life that's been a pivot point where I've changed something, it's fitness that has been the catalyst for that change. It's been fitness that's really like essentially saved my life, really. So I've been incredibly fortunate. Yeah, 100%. How long were you in Hong Kong for? Seven and a half years. That would have been a great experience. Hmm. Um, it was an experience. Um, look, Hong Kong is one of those places. It is the craziest, without a doubt, the craziest place I've ever lived in my life. It was, I went over there. Um, I actually got hypnotized before I went because I had, like, I was a big binge drinker and I knew that going to Hong Kong, it was party central. And I really, I was going there. I was actually going there not to do a job in fitness, but to do a job in PR and marketing because I managed bars. That's how I got myself through university. So I went to Hong Kong on this contract for PR and marketing for three bars. So I literally, I knew I was going to get drunk. I tried to get hypnotized so I wouldn't do it, but I spent the first part of my time in Hong Kong drunk and disorderly. I put on like 10 kgs, I think, in like my first couple of years because I was just out of control. And then, you know, usual story, I met a boy over there, ex-Kiwi, footy player, ex-fighter. He owned a gym in Hong Kong. And um, we ended up together for pretty much the whole of my stay. So my year contract turned into like seven years and I ended up working for him at an MMA fitness studio over there. So, yeah. Yeah, right. And then you, it was it, you come back to work at 98 Riley? Yeah. So while I was, so while I was in Hong Kong, both my parents actually passed away. So my mum, while she had manic depression, she actually died because she was OCD about cleaning and she was up on a ladder one day cleaning the ceiling and she fell off the ladder and punctured her lung. And it was, it was a really interesting time for me because my relationship with my mom had always kind of suffered, I guess, since the whole mental illness diagnosis. Um, my mom tried to take her life when I was 17 and I intervened. And while she survived, something in our relationship really died early on and I didn't really know how to fix it. And when I was in Hong Kong, I was kind of going through the process of trying to reconcile how I felt about the situation with my mum. And I'd just come to this whole conclusion that I was absolutely going to build bridges and I was really going to make an effort and I was going to tell her I loved her all the time because it's something that I hadn't really been able to do. And then she passed away. And it's probably the only regret that I have in my life. Like the only regret um, is that I didn't build that bridge. And it's why I'm so passionate about, you know, both mental health, but also just advocating for, you know, tell the people around you that you love them, be kind, do the right thing, be the bigger person, because you just don't know. You think you have time to do all those things. You think you have time to mend stuff, but you just don't know. And one day you're out of time and you wish you'd done it, you know, and that's, yeah, that's the only regret I have. And then two years after my mum passed away while I was in Hong Kong, my dad died and he died of liver cirrhosis as a direct consequence of being an alcoholic because after my mum's suicide attempt, he, um, his coping mechanism while mine was the gym, his was to drink and he would like drink a bottle of whiskey sometimes two a day. So he was a functioning alcoholic before he was just an alcoholic before he actually died of liver cirrhosis. And I went to his funeral. I flew back to New Zealand for his funeral. I got absolutely shit faced. <laughs> threw up all over myself, fell off the bar, fell in a ditch, missed my flight home and then woke up and went, fuck this, I'm never drinking again. And I flew back to Hong Kong and that was the last time I touched alcohol. And so I, it was one of the biggest changes and one of the best changes I have ever made in my life because I got back to Hong Kong and everyone else was still partying, everyone else was still carrying on as per normal, even my partner, all my friends. And I was like, what do I do with myself? I'm so angry. I'm so frustrated. Like, what do you do in the weekends if you're not out partying? Like, what else is there to do? And in a place like Hong Kong, it was kind of like social suicide. And um, I ended up, one of the girls who was working at the gym at the time was a teetotaler. She'd been through drug and alcohol rehab and she was like, you have to find a hobby. So I was like, okay, cool. So I ended up getting into half Ironman. I started a triathlon club and that's where I found Jim Jones. I was Googling all this stuff online and I found out about this 
you know, cool place in Utah, which was like the secret society. And I was like, their whole mantra was the mind is primary. And I was like, right, I'm going to go there and I'm going to try and I'm going to see what this is all about. And I ended up spending the next four and a half years, five years, like between Hong Kong and Utah every year training with the boys at Jim Jones. Um, you know, I did my foundation, I did my intermediate, I did my advanced, I did the internship. Um, and that's where I met the boys from Sydney. And during that transition, like half Ironman stopped me from drinking. And then when I didn't need either of those two things anymore, I kind of like, I qualified for the world champs in half Ironman after two and a half years and went, right, I don't really want to go to the worlds. I think I'm done. I think I've proved everything to myself that I needed to prove. Um, met Chris and it was just the perfect timing. And I was like, right, it's time to leave Hong Kong and start a new chapter. What are the distances for half Ironman? They are, it's a 1.8K swim, a 90K bike and a 21K run. And I had never, I'd never done an open water swim before in my life. And I am absolutely terrified of sharks. So for me, like the biggest thing was learning to swim. And I still remember the first time going down to the pool and I'd said to the guy, I'm a really bad swimmer because I'm like built and I don't float. And so I just fight the water. I'm not comfortable in it at all. I'm the person lying on the beach. I'm never in the water. And um, I remember getting out of the pool after the first session, him going to me, you know, you said you were bad, Alexa, but I didn't realize you were that bad. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> I might look like a swimmer, but really I'm not. Um, so yeah, it's, um, it was, it was tough, but you know, I, swimming was never my strength. And so I stopped doing the sprint distance and I stopped doing triathlon purely because I was never first out of the water. So I could never catch the draft. So when I switched to the bigger distances, my strength was in biking and running. And so I could come out wherever I needed to and I could always catch up in the bike and the run. So yeah, it was a bit, a bit of strategy at the end. And do you think it's something you'll ever turn back to? Fuck no. My, day, <laughs> my days of endurance are, are done. It served its purpose. So, I mean, like I said, I, you know, I've had a significant injury. It was probably two years ago or nearly three years ago, actually, I was diagnosed with degenerative osteoarthritis in my left hip. And it meant that, you know, I went from being an athlete to I couldn't even walk across the room without crutches. You know, there was eight months. I remember doing a squat session when I was feeling pain in my hip. And I remember not being able to walk for four days afterwards and being like, holy hell, what is wrong? And I remember going, you know, waking up in the morning with a sore, stiff back and then going to a yoga class thinking I'm just going to stretch it out, not being able to bring my hip into flexion, not being able to get into pigeon pose and just being like, man, I'm so tight. When really I was, you know, really injured and I went and saw a guy who does ART and he was trying to loosen up my back and then he was trying to loosen up my adductors and then he was, you know, thinking it was all coming from this one place and as the pain started moving around, he's like, babe, you need to go and like get an MRI. I went and got an MRI and the doctor was like, get an x-ray. You're too young to have anything wrong with you, but I think you've torn the labrum. Um, when I got the MRI, torn the labrum top and bottom, so it was just bone on bone and then they were like, and you've got degenerative osteoarthritis. If you don't get a full hip replacement, you're not going to walk again. Wow. And I was 38 and I was like, what the fuck? Seriously. It's not something you expect to hear. Um, and oh, I, yeah, it was crazy. It was like the worst. I have so much respect now for people who have chronic pain because I have never, ever been in a situation where that's the only thing that I've been able to think about. When you can't sleep because of the pain, when you're isolated um, from the people that you love to be around because you can't train anymore. When you can't train and you identify with being physically strong, who are you? Um, you know, and it was just, it was this never ending battle. It was for eight months that went on like that before I could get my, before I went in for my first operation. And it was, yeah, it was the toughest thing I've ever been through for sure. Yeah. And what was the recovery like after you went in for surgery? Well, so first I was admitted, the first surgery I went in for was on, it would be in August the 12th, 2017. And I actually went in at 8am in the morning and at 12pm, I woke up in ICU on a breathing tube. So I had had an anaphylactic reaction to my antibiotics and I died on the table. So I had to be resuscitated four times. And um, I woke up in ICU with three of my best mates standing over my hospital bed, just bawling their eyes out. And I was like, what the hell has happened? Um, when I was in ICU in a week, looked like a blowfish, um, went back and then had to have like 
hundreds of injections to test what my allergy was from. And it turns out it was Keflex. So had I gone to the doctor, because I can't have penicillin, had I gone to the doctor for a chest infection and been like, can you give me some drugs for my chest infection? And they give me Keflex, I would have died at home. So it was in the perfect place to not die. Um, but then I had to wait 10 weeks to get the second lot again. I had a massive panic attack the first time I went into hospital because my body obviously just remembered the trauma. Um, but I had the second operation was successful. That was in October. Um, I was back in the gym on day nine on my crutches, on painkillers. And I was going, I went to this place called Origin of Energy, which is this calisthenics place in Bondi Junction here. Um, it was run by Anthony Minicello and his business partner. And he set me up in the corner of the room on my own rig with my crutches there, put a band up and he just helped me do all my upper body stuff, all my rehab. And then he'd help me out to my car at the end of it. And I did that for pretty much like three or four months. And then um, I had a girl who owns fluid form Pilates here. She did all of my prehab and all of my rehab. So between the two of them, I was able to keep training. Um, and it, it's funny, like, cause when I saw my orthopedic surgeon, it would have been six months after I had the hip done, you go for your checkup. And he was like, honestly, this is the quickest recovery I've ever seen in my life. And he's like, your weight training and the fact that, you know, because I was hinging and rack pulling and hip thrusting and glute bridging all the way up to going into surgery, even if I would crawl out in pain. Um, he was like, all of that stuff has set you in really good stead. And he's like, I would have no qualms about recommending this type of training for anyone going in for hip replacement. Yeah, that's great, isn't it? Oh, amazing. How important was the training during that time to your mental health, do you reckon? It was probably the most important thing. I remember like one day just walking into the gym and like I'm usually a really like effervescent, enthusiastic, really bubbly person. I remember just, it was almost like dragging my feet one day as I walk in the gym and there was this guy there who's a regular and he's always the guy that you're like, how are you, mate? And he's like, fucking awesome. And you're like, yeah, I'm awesome too. And I remember just being like, yeah, I'm okay. And he comes up to me at the end. He's like, man, you just seem really flat today. Hey. And I was like, you know what? Fuck off. I was like, I am flat. I'm in so much pain right now. I can't even tell you like my whole life has been disrupted. I can't do anything that I want to can do, you know, and then I have to come in here and make out like I'm having the best freaking day of my life when really like I don't want to get out of bed in the morning. Like I am dragging myself here because out of a commitment to my clients so they can see that this shit is still possible. And even on the worst days of my life, I can still come in here and help them because helping them is pretty much all I have. And he was just like, holy shit. And I, one of the guys, a guy called Kib Toonan, who does, he heads up the 98 online training and he's like a hard ass, you know. And I think it was the first time the boys had ever really seen me struggle. And he pulled me aside and he was like, honestly, Lex, I had no idea that it would, this was this much, you know, you're in this much pain. I didn't realize it was that bad, you know, like respect for coming in and doing what you're doing. I had no idea. And he's like, what can I do that's going to make this easier for you? And I was like, I don't want pity. I don't want to feel like a fucking victim. I just want you to train me in a way that I can train so that I can feel strong because that is the only thing that's going to get me through this. And you know what? There were days where I would crawl out of the gym because I was in pain. Like it got to a point where I couldn't even stand on one leg. But if I felt physically strong, like if I'd done a workout, it overrode all the psychological suffering that I was going through. And that was the one thing that really got me through. So, yeah. Where are you at now percentage-wise with your hip? I have no restrictions. None. Yeah. I mean, there are things that I can't, you know, it's not recommended. Like I wouldn't endurance training, for example, you know, like the wear and tear on one hip, they've got like a, you know, a lifespan of kind of like 20 years. If I went into endurance sport again, I'd run the risk of having another hip replacement in my 10 years. Um, having my hip replacement changed my perspective on training. And that's, you know, like I was fast and furious. I was the high volume, high intensity, grr, I'm going to do everything, girl. And it really forced me to reassess the way I was training and the way I was moving my body and how I felt after each session. And was I listening to my body? If I felt really shitty after an FYF session at the gym, why was I continuing to do that? If I couldn't walk for four days afterwards, how is that a good thing? You know, how is that improving the quality of my life? And I just started making more changes and I have honestly, physically never felt better. Sure, I'm never going to be the girl that 
can go into like can walk into a pitch and play a game of touch footy if she hasn't warmed up or maybe I can't do that again. You know, there are things that I can't do but I don't necessarily want or need to be able to do them. Like I think I proved everything I needed to prove to myself about how physically or mentally tough I was back then when I had to, you know, and now I just, just want to, I just want to enjoy my life. I love what I do and I just want to keep loving what I do and, and empowering other people to love the same type of thing, you know? Yeah, for sure. And this is something I've, I've taken like a little bit of a different approach with my training over this Corona time. And I've tried a few different things and I've kind of found that the less is more approach is kind of working better for me. Um, my numbers are better. Um, I'm not walking out of the gym feeling like I've been <laughs> flogged every single session. Um, yeah. and it's kind of changed the whole way I'm going to run my gym from kind of this point forward. But I think you've got to experience that for yourself to understand. And now it's for me to show my clients that less is more. Yeah, and I think, you know, once you have, once you've experienced that, you're coming from a different place. You're not coming from a, I'm going to, you know, do what I say, but not as I do kind of thing. You're like, do as I say, because I've trialed it, it works. This is how I feel. And this is the gift I want to give to you, you know, and you'll attract the clientele that want that from you. I attract a clientele that wants to get to the next level or attract clientele that for whatever reason need to change their training or have had an injury and they want to relate or they want to have somebody relate to them and have a specific type of empathy for their situation. If you've never had a significant injury and you don't understand what pain is, like what pain truly is and what chronic pain is and how that can affect your movement and your life um, and everything else in it, you can't, you don't understand. When, When a client is saying to you, no, I actually can't do this, and we go just fucking harden up and do it. Unless you've been there and you've experienced that, you actually have no idea of what it's like to be put in a situation where someone's saying do this and you're actually, no, but I actually can't. Like I'm not being a pussy here. I actually can't do it. Or I know that if I do this, I'm not going to walk for the next four days. You know, like I think, yeah, once you've experienced that, it's, it's a whole new level of understanding when you're training people. Yeah, the risk versus reward. Like when I was 20, like yesterday, for instance, I just like had a, I trained with uh, one of an athlete in town um, and I still put him, he was feeling good through his thing. And I said, I'm just going to take it easy. But back five years ago, I wouldn't have listened to myself as well as that. So it's uh, small steps as you get that bit older each time, I think. Um, what were some of your biggest lessons from Jim Jones? Um, that the body will do what the mind tells it to. Um, you know, basically their whole thing is mind is primary and 90% of that, you know, unless you've got a significant injury, well, even if you have a significant injury, if your mind says that you can do it, you will find a way to do it. Like, and I love that mental toughness approach. Um, I also like, I really enjoyed the way that they programmed, you know, I liked, that it was goal specific. Like it really gave me a whole train for your objective approach. You know, I think so many people just go out and haphazardly lift weights and then do a cardio session or, you know, they're saying they're doing strength when you look at the training and it's like a massive power endurance or Metcon, you're like, this isn't strength. Like it really gave me an understanding of what it was like to have a specific objective and then to program around that objective. Um, And then I just like the sense of community. It really was what I loved most about it was at the time when I was there, it was this exclusive secret society. There were standards. You had to have, you had to hit standards to get in, to be a part of that community. So if you didn't really want to be there, it showed. You'd turn up to, you know, a foundation seminar and if you couldn't hit the numbers, they're like, was this important to you? And the people are like, yeah, and they're like, well, why the fuck did you not hit the numbers? You knew that that was a criteria for getting in here. Why did you not prioritize that as part of your training? You know, so it really kind of weeded out the people who didn't really have an objective, who kind of wanted to be part of the industry for a completely different reason versus the people who really wanted to hold themselves accountable and have those standards. You know, and I think one of the things that, you know, 98 does really well is that they have this thing. They're like, you know, set the standards, hold them, you know. You are, you're the standard and you are accountable to that. And people, your community look to you for holding that standard. So yeah, those are the things I really enjoyed. Yeah, step the standard. Something that I read uh, 
the other day was the leader is the limiter and that kind of hit home a little bit for me as well but I guess similar on the same page there um, I'm not sure if you remember at Real Movement Camp uh, you come in and spoke to us and you were telling us about a guy that was at Jim Jones that hated man makers oh my god yeah um, yeah actually he lived in Hong Kong and he um, they have this thing so Rob McDonald, who used to work at Jim Jones, or Bobby Maximus, as most people know him now, he used to tell this story of like, it's kind of, what was it called? Like, it was like the monkey and the stick. So he basically had this guy, if you go into like, say we use rowing as an example, or the 2,000 metre row, you know, for guys it should be under seven minutes. That was the standard. And he had this guy that if you broke it down into six lots of 30 seconds, if you're hitting these specific numbers over three sets consecutively, you should be physically capable of doing a 2,000-meter row under seven minutes. And the guy would come in every time and he couldn't, he just couldn't do it. He wouldn't do it. For whatever reason, he would start off really strong and then his mind just let him down. He believed he couldn't do it and so he never did it. And Rob got to a point where he was like, right, the first thing that you were going to do every time you come in here, you're going to do the 2,000-meter row and you're going to do this every time until you get below seven minutes on your 2000 meter row. Like, and if you don't want to come in and do that, then you're not going to train here. That's just what you're going to do. And essentially the guy decided one day that fuck it. He didn't want to do that 2000 meter row anymore. So he just came on one morning and went and, and got the standard. And I used the same principle on a guy in Hong Kong who was like, we talked about, you know, people never want to train their weaknesses. And I had a, a guy in Hong Kong who was shit at rowing and he was shit at man makers and he hated them. And he'd been giving me a bit of, bit of attitude and he caught me on a day and I'd been like, okay, this is your set today. And it was like, I think I'd given it, it was awful. It was like all of his weaknesses in one session. And it was like 2000 meter row, 20 man makers, 1500 meter row, 15 man makers, thousand meter row, 10, 505. And he heard the session. You should have seen his face. And I was just waiting for it because he'd been giving, he'd just whined about everything. And I was like, this is the punishment. This is what you are now going to do. This is your session. He was like, well, I want to do it. And I'm like, well, the option is you fucking do it or you leave. And he was like, fuck it, whatever. And he starts, he starts doing it and he got through the first set and he was like, I'm not doing it. And he walks out and I'm like, cool, no worries. Don't, don't do it then, but don't think about coming back to training until you do it. And um, he walked out mid-session. Like he was like, no, nah, I've had enough. I'm not doing this. How dare you? You, know, like, you knew I couldn't do this and you've deliberately set up for failure and I'm not doing it. And I was like, cool, there's the door. And he left and I, he walked out. It was the first time I've ever done it to a client. I was like, oh my God, what have I done? Like, I've probably lost this guy. He's thinking she's absolutely crazy. Um, and I didn't hear from him for two days. And I was like, oh, I've lost him for sure. This is crazy. Anyway, he, um, he messages me like two or three days later and he sends me a photo of his Jim Jones t-shirt and he's taken it out of his closet and he's put it in the other room. He's like, I don't deserve to wear this t-shirt until I finish that set. And he came back in the next week and finished it, hated every second of it, but he came in and finished it because he decided in his own time that his attitude had sucked and that he absolutely should have come back and do it. So, and he ended up being a long-term client of mine. But, you know, it, it's interesting. We, the language that we use with ourselves and the stories that we tell and, the, you know, the self-narrative and inner dialogue that we have it absolutely controls what your body does. You know, you just have to think about it. I mean, the amount of times I bet you've had chicks come in and be like, they've got a plateau for their squat or their deadlift. And you're like, you can physically do over this. Like you're not even struggling at this weight, but then they hit that weight and they're like, they fall apart and they're like, no, definitely can't do it. I had girls like that in Hong Kong. And I remember, you know, getting to a 60 kg plateau one day and then, and they swore black and blue, they couldn't do it. 60 kgs, they were fine. 62.5, everything fell apart. And it was like, I know you can do this. So one day I just cheated the weights and put them all all haphazardly and said it was like at 57.5. And they did five reps at like 62.5 and then 65. And then I took it off and I made them count it. And it's, it's just incredible the fact that we really do have so much control physiologically by what we tell ourselves. And, you know, so those were just two really good examples. Yeah. And with your training now, um, how do you – how do you get the most out of your clients that think they want it, but their actions aren't really showing that they do want it? It's a really good question. Um, I mean, I have all my clients set specific goals at the middle of it. And I, 
I don't think I have anyone that trains with me that isn't prepared to put their money where their mouth is. Um, females are hard psychologically, I find, but they're more rewarding in the long run because, you know, a lot of times like with my female clients, again, like I've had, especially when you get the whole argument of females never really wanted to embrace the weights room because they thought they were going to get bigger. And it was like, it's a, it's a legitimate concern because if you don't eat right to support what you're doing in the gym, you can put on weight, you know, like you don't get to eat whatever you want and be an absolute sloth at home just because you're training in the gym for 45 minutes a day. And that was like, you know, it's, it's one of a, it's a big underestimating factor, but it's kind of like, again, it comes back to the once people see what it is that they can achieve, then they're likely to get motivated. So it's finding, it's finding what motivates each individual client. For some clients, it's the way they look. For one of my clients who's like, she'd never been in the weights room before. She's a lawyer. She's in a male dominated environment. For her, it was the fact that the day she lifted a 30 kg trap bar deadlift was legitimately the best day of her life because she messaged me when she got back to the office and she was like, you know what? Today, I never thought I'd say this, but today, you know, I showed all the boys the video of that lift and it was the first time I could set boundaries and it was the first time I stood up for myself and it was the first time I said no because I'm all woman and I'm all powerful. And I was like, well, it's quite dramatic. But for her, she kind of found her motivator. Like she'd never really experienced that high before from that. You know, I've had other clients who, you know, wanted an aesthetic and they haven't believed they've got it. So we've taken sneaky before and after photos and then put them side by side months down the track. Like, I don't think there's a one size fits all kind of thing, but I think you've just got to find those individual motivating things for each client and recognize that they are very different and that it's very unusual for it to be like a one conversation and it's going to fix it. Like I think people have different days of doing really well and thinking positive thoughts and then they have other things in their life that bring them down and they forget about all their goals and it's your job to try and get them back on track. But yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I, what do you use with your clients? Yeah. Try and go down the, the watch your wire path a little bit, but not just like one little small dig, like try and really yeah. dig deeper than, you know, uh, because I want to feel better. I think yeah. you need to have something that's deeply important to you. Um, but the guys who really want it show consistency and they're determined and I guess I'm constantly pulling my hair out is why it's 25% of people, I guess, that come in and make the big transformations that everyone talks about and not yeah. 100%. But it's we all want the easy road and we all want to lose that five kilos in, in a month and not uh, think how long that five kilos take to put on. Yeah. I mean, look, I think it does. It comes down to two things. Like one, it's the same as when I stopped drinking, like the amount of times I've had people come in and they're like, right, I want to lose weight. I'm thinking about stopping drinking. What do you think? And I'm like, if that's your reason for quitting alcohol, you're never going to stick because it's not a purpose that's greater than yourself. You know, like you're going to, at some point in time, it's not that important to you. You're going to talk yourself out of it and you're going to get back on the drink and you're going to convince yourself that one night doesn't make any difference. You know, you have to have that big driving factor that's absolutely greater than yourself. Um, but I mean, I find now that the biggest thing I see is that a lot of people, especially women, come in to the gym for a certain look or aesthetic and then they realize they have a moment where either someone notices like that there's been a significant change or they've been able to move house without asking for help or like Lizzie, she's gone back to the office and she's had that moment of empowerment and it becomes less about the aesthetic and more about, you know, how that made them feel in the rest of their life and they go, oh my God, it's not just about how I look, it's about how this translates into my attitude towards the rest of my life and how much better the rest of my life is because I'm doing this or because of my mindset shift. So, you know, it's great. If we can get people into the gym and be like, cool, in a year's time or six months time, you can look a certain way, but along the way we can guide them to a place where they feel really good and they feel really strong 
and the people around them start noticing the difference and it makes a positive impact outside of the gym towards the rest of their life and, you know, towards their performance and everything else that they do, I think that can be a huge driving factor um, and motivator for success. Yeah, for sure, for sure. A big uh, portion of my clients or a bigger portion of my clients are females. What are some, um, I guess, tips? You're kind of an expert at training females. <laughs> <laughs> what, what are some tips for, for um, getting them to get the most out of training? I tell you what, the, the, most, the majority of females that used to come to me wanted an ass really interesting um you know they did they came in for a certain aesthetic and then you notice all the other things that needed you know we as strength coaches we want to be able to see them do pull-ups and push-ups and you know heavy lifting whatever some women just don't want to do that or they've never they've never seen that as a goal that they thought would be obtainable for them so it would just be easier to lift light weights like the rest of the population um I always found that like if women came in and they had never really experienced results before, the first day I would give them a glute and hamstring focused exercise, like say a triple threat on a Swiss ball. And the minute they felt their glutes and their hamstrings work, probably for the first time in their entire life, because most of these women had never been taught to move properly before, so they'd only ever felt quads. The first time they ever felt their glutes and their hamstrings, I was like, oh my God, this is like an epiphany whatever else you tell me to do, I'm going to do it because this is what you've given me. You know what I mean? So again, goes back to the give them what they want, but sneak in what they need. Once you give them what they want or what they think they want, they'll trust you with anything else in the process. But if you go in arguing with them and telling them that their concerns are negligible, like that whole argument for you're not going to get big, the amount of guy trainers or female trainers, like even, even, any strength coach having that argument with any female it's not your job as a coach to tell a woman that that's not what's going to happen I'm probably one percent of the population if I went into a gym and it has happened to me before where I've said to a coach I was training for boxing I don't want to put on any more size I need to get quick and they're like you're not going to put on size you don't have the hormonal profile to do that I get jacked as fuck just by looking at weights and I did I put on a ton of ton of size in my upper body from lifting weights in a range that wasn't suitable for what I was doing because they didn't think that was going to happen because they negated my concerns. There is a way to have those conversations with people, especially women, that make them understand that you are empathetic to their cause and you can train them and give them what they want so that then they trust you enough to then train in the way that they need to. So there is a way to do that whole process. And for women, we want to know the what's, the why's, the how's, the, you know, like, and don't underestimate the importance of explanation. Guys don't really give a shit about that stuff. They want to come in, they want to lift heavy, they want to get big and jacked and whatever. We want to know why. And if you can't tell us why this is going to happen or how this is going to happen or when it's going to happen and encourage us through the process, then, you know, it's not going to be a positive experience. And the more positive the experience at the gym or with the trainer, the more consistent you're going to be because you want to go and have that positive experience and the more consistency, the more results you're going to get. So like it really does come down to being able to understand the psychology of the clients that you're dealing with. And again, you know, give them what they want and then what they need. So yeah. Yeah, for sure. And what about, um, I say this mostly in ladies, like they all want to eat less than 1200 calories. How do you, Oh, you know what? It's funny because I don't even, for the first little while while I'm training, I actually don't talk about nutrition with my clients at all. I get them into a routine because I find that if I, if I blur the lines, if I start talking about nutrition in my training sessions, it fucks up their training sessions because then all they're thinking about is their nutrition and then they get really confused. I try and keep it really, really simple. Now I outsource nutrition because I just find that it's much better not to have those conversations as part of the training session. So I have a nutritionist that I work with who actually, who understands everything, can explain it in whatever way the client needs to learn and to understand. And I find that's a much better way of doing it. But then, you know, a lot of them will want to know what I do. Um, And I'm big on, you know, like I don't count calories. I 
eat when I'm hungry. I eat till I'm almost full. And at the very least, I, if a food doesn't make me feel good, I don't eat it. So I kind of like explain the basics of what I do. And, you know, that I often find that when they start training, they could be eating a ton of shit. And then when they start feeling better, they gradually become more interested in good nutrition. And when they're starting to get results in the gym, they start trusting you more. Therefore, they start listening to you more. Um, but yeah, I, I just find like I'm not a nutritionist. I'm a nutrition coach. So I tend, yeah, I just tend to outsource that to the actual professional now. Like it's just the best way I've found for sure. You hate a caramello koala too. Oh my God. It's so fucking delicious. <laughs> <laughs> we kind of spoke about um, what you learned from Jim Jones and you said kind of 98 Riley was set the standard. What else did you get from 98 Riley? It's obviously one of the top yeah, look, I I love the sense of community and the sense of accountability that goes with 98 Riley. You know, anyone that walks in that door understands that there is a certain work ethic that is required to be a part of the community. And if you don't want to work hard or if you're a dick, you're out. They don't want shit people. And it's one thing I love about it. You know, if you're a shit person and you've got a shit attitude, you're weeded out real quick and you either change your attitude or you're done. And, you know, I, I really like that. You know, life's too short to have shit people around. So, you know, I, I remember a guy came into the gym one day and did a talk about like viruses and was like, you know, you want to weed out the viruses. You want to get rid of the viruses because you don't want everyone else to get sick. And it is, it's true. Like I have a rule that I don't have shit people in my life. And if they are shit people, they get an, they get an option to change their attitude or I just don't hang out with them. And I think that's really important to be part of a community is to kind of, it's not just about the standards that you're upholding with the weights or, you know, specific times that you have to hit on rower or the assault bike. It's about having a standard of human being that you want around you so that everyone is lifting each other up. You don't want the people that are bringing it down because you end up bringing the average down if you've got crappy people in there. So, yeah, it's, it's one of the things about 98 Rally Street that I love and that there's a big misconception around is that it's all about the weights that you lift and the times that you get. It's not. It's about the attitude towards the training and it's about the attitude towards the people around you that actually matter the most to those guys, and I really respect that. Yeah, it's good. That's so good. I've done some 98 on ro- online stuff and it's... Good luck with that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Let's wrap it up. I'll just jump into these five questions quickly. Tell us something about you that no one would know. I used to do WWE wrestling under the name of Glacier. <laughs> <laughs> Where was this done at? Oh, everyone gets out of their Google. No, um, it was before the times of the internet, I think. Um, it was in New Zealand while I was going through uni. So I played American football as a linebacker and I wrestled. Yeah. How good. <laughs> Best piece of advice you've ever been given? No one ever regret. No, hang on. Actually, no. Biggest piece of advice we've been getting is the language that you use can be really powerful. So you can reframe any situation. Um, The biggest thing is next time you find yourself using the words, I am struggling, change the narrative and you are being challenged because that it implies growth. It implies that it's not a hopeless situation, implies that there is learning involved. So I really like that. Like learn to reframe your narrative. Yeah, how good. Is there anything that's happened to you that you thought would be the worst thing in your life but's turned out to be a blessing? Dying. Because, um, I mean, like, you know, I'm an ambassador for the charity Livin, so I'm, I'm a passionate advocate for mental health. And one of the last things I did before I went into surgery was actually deliver a Livin' Well presentation at a school in Townsville, which has one of the highest suicide rates in Australia. And um, while I was delivering this presentation, there's like a girl boiling her eyes out in the front row and I'm just watching her thinking, shit, I've really triggered something here by telling my story. And she ended up coming up to me at the end of the presentation and just giving me this most massive, most beautiful hug and just being like, you know, I just wanted to say thank you. You know, you saved my life today. And it turns out that she was planning on killing herself that day. But hearing that somebody else has been through adversity and come out the other side and that asking for help is a really courageous thing to do, really shifted her perspective and she decided to ask for help that day. And that conversation was kind of the first thing that I remembered when I woke up and it 
became my purpose. Like going into surgery, I had a job, a job I loved as a PT, but a job. Coming out of surgery, I felt like I woke up with a purpose and that was an incredible thing. So, yeah, that was at a time where I was my physically at my weakest, I was probably the mentally toughest I'd ever been and I found purpose in that. Kevin Hart just spoke something about that on Joe Rogan podcast just the other Did day. Did he now? Yeah, crazy. Oh, look it up. This lines up, yeah. <laughs> Where do you want to be in five years? I like asking this because most people don't really think big enough. I want to be traveling the world and talking. I'm moving more into the speaking space now as a motivational speaker and I want to be able to use my experiences and my platform to help an infinite amount of people. So that's where I'd be like training for me, physical, it's a physical medium. It's a tool to empower other people, but I want to be able to do this on a world stage and I want to be able to have more of those moments and more of those conversations that could save lives. Yeah, 100%. Favorite quote? No one ever regrets being kind. Kindness always wins. That's just a common thing everyone keeps saying. (laughs) I know. Well, it's true, man. Like, you know, you could have an argument with someone, you could break up with someone, you could hate somebody. You can't control the shit that gets thrown at you or how people treat you, but you can always control how you react to that. And you can say things in the heat of the moment that you might never, ever be able to take back and that you might never be able to unaffect another person with. But you will never ever come out of a situation or an interaction with anyone if you've chosen to be the bigger person and regret it ever. Love it. Where can the listeners find you? Uh, Probably the best thing is Action Alexa. I thought about changing it to Awkward Alexa given how terrible I am at skateboarding and everything else that goes with it. But (laughs) Action Alexa is is probably the best place to find me and I'm usually pretty good with my DMs. Yeah, thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it. Oh, you're so welcome. I'm glad we finally got to do this. I'm sick of us not doing this right. That's why I think I'm cutting you from my life. No more. I'm sick of us not doing this right. That's why I think I'm cutting you from my life. No more wasted energy spending a pace for every hour of wait. I need an escape to center me. And I don't mean to make a rush for the door, but time's a currency. I'm currently poor. I'll be leaving it soon. I don't mean to be rude, but this scene ain't for me. Like your mom's seen you. If you liked it, take a screenshot, pop it on your Instagram story, and tag Logan Thorpe and Logan Thorpe Fitness. If you haven't done so already, make sure you jump over and leave a review.